people, it's your girl, Tasha Ray, the host of Womanhood Decoded, where each episode I endeavor to explore the intersections of womanhood, motherhood, and sexuality. On this episode, I have with me Dr. Laura Cobb, and I am so thankful to have you here as a guest. Welcome to the show. Super happy to be here. This is exciting. I'm excited to talk with your listeners. Great. So if you wouldn't mind, can you give my listeners a little bit of a background on what you do and how you came to do it? Well, I work with high achieving, successful or ambitious professional women, and I help equip them with the tools and techniques to help prevent self-sabotage. It, it pains me to see women who are so high achievers and, and they struggle with feeling confident to be seen in their work environment, and sometimes in their family environment as well. So I give them, empower them to help them not to sit in fear and silence so that when they stand, someone will be listening to speak. Awesome. So that is a very specific area that you work in. How did that come to be? Well, my entire life, I didn't feel like I had a voice until I got to college and I was bullied as a child and I didn't feel like I mattered. Very much. I was the. I wasn't shy by any means. I was definitely an extrovert. However, I wasn't in my family. I'm the youngest of four, so my sister was very pretty and the outgoing, popular one, and my brother was the joker. and And I really didn't have a thing. And so when I got to college, I started to. And I was really good at at school. That's when I started to feel like I had a voice, although I still didn't feel like I had a strong enough voice that no one would stop and listen when I had something to say. So for my entire life, being a high achiever, earning another degree, going into the workforce and another promotion, another accolade, a scholarship, whatever it was, I wondered oftentimes if I was an imposter that I didn't know if they were going to find out, did I really earn what I'd worked for? Even though after walking across the stage and the dean shaking my hand saying, congratulations, Dr. Cobb, 12 years of college, I turned and looked over my shoulder and I said, oh, you're talking to me? And after sitting down and wondering, did it, did it matter? Does anyone really know how much pain I feel inside? Very lonely and always wondering, how, when am I going to implode? Wow. That is something that uh, your experience, it really resonates in that um, there is this thing, I'm sure you've probably heard of it, code switching, where essentially um, I present one way with my friends and family, and then I present a different way that is acceptable to corporate culture as it pertains to my speech pattern um, and things of that nature. So when it comes to being understood or comes to being valued in the workplace, even though, like you said, I have received various different accommodations awards and whatever have you, um, there is this level of self-doubt that tends to sometimes, you know, rear its ugly head. So it's uh, comforting to hear that as a high achiever, I'm not the only one that has experienced that. Absolutely not. And I often, I don't want to label myself, so, so to speak, but that's how I feel sometimes is a, uh, a high achiever with in inferiority complex or high achiever with... Um, imposter within a high achievers curse that, uh, that um, I've achieved a lot and I wonder how much more I can try to fill up that empty hole in my soul that uh, I need to, and I need to do more in order to be more. So where's my value? And I, I lived like that for so long. And even into my, my early forties, uh, I remember mm -hmm. it was worse for me actually turning 30 than 40. 40 wasn't as scary. And for my entire, I pretty much did the same thing in my profession that I said did in college. I achieved, I moved over to Germany when I got married while I was finishing my doctorate. And I started a second master's while I was overseas that last year of my dissertation because I just couldn't write all day. Cause, so I started another, another degree. So, cause that's what one does. <laughs> and uh, and um, mm -hmm. I was very busy, 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 so much so that I couldn't sit still in my skin because I just wanted to crawl out of myself because I couldn't see any other way in life than to keep achieving. And it was all wonderful on the outside. And my resume was very well padded with with um, factual, with data that's, that's true. At the same time, that's on paper. That's not 
to the benefit of my relationships, which suffered extraordinarily. It was a difficult time um, trying to fit in living overseas with a military community because my husband then was active duty and having an advanced degree and keeping my own name when I got married. I didn't have children yet and uh, still felt very isolated. And on paper, people thought, wow, you're a doctor. Yeah, and I'm completely lonely and I have no friends and I don't know what I'm doing with my life, which is not what one might, might, might think. Uh-huh. But then trying to communicate that I'm lonely and scared, who do I say that to? So you sit with it. At least right. I Right. Absolutely. And I say absolutely because I often joke with my circle of friends and I say, listen, I know that I am excellent at school. Life, not so much because life, it has situational ethics and there's all sorts of gray area. When I decide to do anything academically, um, it comes with a syllabus. If you follow it (laughs) nine out of 10 times, you're going to be successful. And I have found out the ways in which I study best. (laughs) So matriculating through whatever different academic uh, rigor that I put myself through, I'm able to do that and uh, succeed. However, when it comes to developing, for example, emotional intelligence, (laughs) or when it comes to um, speaking my mind in a conflict, in a personal conflict. I'm really good at being able to compartmentalize, you know, when I'm working in, um, cause I work in a high or male dominated field as a journalist. And so I'm used to going toe to toe with men um, in that arena. You know, I had to for over 14 years, you know so I'm kind of good at that. However, you know, in my personal relationship Sometimes I'm not for sure on what role I am to Mm. be as it pertains to what does being quote unquote um, compliant or submissive or any of the other adjectives that I'm supposed (laughs) to be able to do as a woman. Mm. How does that translate, especially if all day I've been, you know, in an advisory or supervisory role or capacity, you know, for however many eight or 10 hours. And Mm. then all of a sudden I come home and I'm supposed to be this very supportive, compliant, you know, woman, how do you do that? You know, in the span of however long it takes me to commute home. So those are the things that I am grappling with at this point in my life. Wow. That was, that's a journey by itself. What? Oh my word. So I, I just rode a wave as you were, (laughs) as you were speaking that I'm feeling, I'm feeling that as, as you were speaking it and that I, I mean, I just put that in context of how does that, how does that relate to COVID? I mean, right. I'm a high achiever. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm very comfortable with my emotional intelligence. And I understand that where I'm at emotionally and how it relates to other people. That doesn't involve being home 24-7 with my kids and my partner, my, my, my husband, and then having to work from home while someone's trying to tug at my leg, going, Mommy, I need some food. You know, go feed mm-hmm. yourself. You can't do that to a toddler. Mm-hmm. Or, um, so then attuning to, that was huge what you just said. I'm thinking Brene Brown. And we cannot, com- we cannot carp- car- compartmentalize work and family. You can't. Whatever mm-hmm. happens at home, we bring it, to, sc- we bring it to, to, fa- to work and vice versa. So in order to do that, it's like it segregates, it separates parts of ourselves and then not, not being truly whole. And I think of the two, two emotions that we truly have is love and fear. Mm. And they're really, they're really on the spectrum of the same, same emotion, same feeling that the degree, I think about when my child was young and I would look at him and I think, oh my gosh, if anything were to happen to him. And I felt that, that pain, that ache. And at the same time, loving him completely, just in full love of him. And mm-hmm. then something happened. And that's a, that's a testament to my, the degree that I fear that is indicative of how much I love him. Also for me, when I moved from Germany after living there for eight years and working for the Pentagon and the U.S. Army and being, you know, no children, I, my first child at 38, moving from a full-time job, a part-time job, completely supported with my, my husband, 
and a new child. I had no job anymore. I gave that up of my own volition, moved back into my parents' basement. Like I had a bedroom in, in high school, a different house, but still the basement, very big enough for a family, rented it. So it would give us a, a year to find a house. No job, a small child. And I had never even changed a diaper by the time I had my son. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, they felt like a cow or I was feeding. I was either I was either feeding or pumping. And I felt I had a nervous breakdown. How do I balance this? So there was no separation between work and family because I had no work anymore. My job was to to be a mother. I didn't know how to be a mother. I never even wanted to be like a stay-at-home mother. I just wanted to have a child. So there, how do you balance that? And in addition, thinking about my identity was so wrapped up with work, I couldn't be. And so then having to be at home with this infant, and then sure enough, a few years later, COVID hits. So even going from that full-time job and then having to transition that to home where now the child is, and I don't want to be at home, love my child still. Even moreover, working from home and now the child returns to home where I have to, they're like coming into my office now. Mm-hmm. That's even more challenging. So then the question becomes, how then do we sit with ourselves, myself, knowing that I have these two roles? Are they the same thing? Are they like two sides of the, of the same coin? Or are we right. balance them? Right. And what I really love about this conversation is it might seem a little bit self-centered, but I feel like sometimes my podcast can be um, a therapeutic session and I hope that others can derive benefit from it. But a lot of what you said really resonated with me because I had this extensive plan for how I or the type of mother I was going to be. And I felt like I had put a plan in place so that I could achieve those goals. Being that I came to motherhood late in life or later in life, I'm Mm -hmm. on the precipice of 40 and I have, um, she's about to be two in January. So um, a lot of my friends or contemporaries, they had their children, you know, in their early twenties or soon after we got our first degree. But what I did at that time, as I was working, you know, paying my quote unquote dues in the field of journalism, mm. you know, so yeah. therefore I did not prioritize mm. relationships. Um, and that's how I found myself choosing to become a mother um, outside of the traditional means in that um, I didn't get married before I pursued motherhood which was unheard of in my family structure from both sides of the family. Cause my parents have been married 40 plus years. Wow. My grandparents on both sides have been married 40 plus years. So I was surrounded by marriages. Mm. However, here I was um, not married and somehow deciding to pursue uh, motherhood and how that came about long story short is mm. I found out that I had fertility challenges. And when I found out I had fertility challenges, um, now it wasn't a thing of if I want to be a mother, now I was determined to be yes. a because yes. the idea that I couldn't be a mother and that <laughs> I had this um, closing window of opportunity, right. I became um, uh, panicked, basically. <laughs> that I had, um, in theory, missed the motherhood boat while I was busy achieving, um, Mm. you know, success, you know, and being that at the height of my career, I also uh, worked at the Pentagon um, by extension because of the work that I did uh, during the second term of the Obama White House. So there were times when I was working at uh, ABC News and I would be uh, live there in studio in the Pentagon. Anyway, what that did is I felt like in at that time I was laying the foundation so that financially whenever I did decide to get married I would be in a good place mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I could then pursue whatever form of motherhood I wanted without feeling like I needed to get for example permission if I wanted to stay home for example or mm-hmm. if I wanted to have an extended maternity leave I wouldn't have that wouldn't be have uh, have to be up to my husband discretion. Yes. So when I found out that I had you know, fertility <laughs> challenges, now all of a sudden I didn't view myself as a viable candidate for marriage because 
I didn't want to get married. And then now I have this problem, this huge problem being that, you know, I have a less than uh, 17 to 23% chance of having a child. They told me uh -huh. um, without having medical intervention. Um, I'm like, I don't want to be, I don't want to get married and then be one of those couples where, you know, you hear people say, well, we got married and the only thing she was focused on was her ovulation mm. as opposed to um, connecting with me through, you know, the beginning parts of the honeymoon phase. So I didn't want to be accused of that. So fast forward, as I just told you, I have a whole daughter now and I'm still not married. <laughs> However, I do have a healthy, thriving relationship, which I think is kind of because, I don't know, I've been lucky for the first time ever to have uh, some semblance of a work-life balance. But um, I think as it pertained to what you were talking about, I had a situation where um, I had a huge identity crisis mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And the reason was, as you said, um, my identity was so wrapped up in my career um, that I didn't find value initially in the role or my decision to be a mother because <laughs> I felt like society was judging me mm -hmm. because I wasn't, you know, financially being um, contributing to my mm -hmm. life. Like I was living off of my savings at that point. Um, and I, as when you talk about pumping and breastfeeding, when people tell you that you should breastfeed, first of all, they don't tell you the pain involved mm -hmm. or the time commitment, you know, that's oh, involved yeah. in breastfeeding. Cause I, um, first I was trying to get to six months, but then I started reading books and found out that, um, in the African-American community, um, we are, uh, very less likely to make it to the year mark because we don't typically have the support or the financial means to be able to breastfeed for a year. Um, so, Long story short, I ended up breastfeeding for a little over 16 months. And uh, in doing so, I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, outside of being exhausted, I just was not in the place to be intimate. So I was super excited that I wasn't married because my married friends were saying that their husbands felt like they had wifely duties that they were somehow neglecting because they were not interested in physical intimacy. And my thing is, how could I possibly be interested in physical intimacy when I have an infant sucking on me <laughs> all day? Like, how can I want somebody else to touch my body if I've right. been through that? So that was what I grappled with. So when you shared your experience, I was just like, oh my goodness, yeah. me So much. So much. I mean, everything you just said, I had fertility, we had fertility issues and we didn't even, we, we, we didn't even have an issue with, with, um, with artificial insemination. We couldn't even do in vitro. Mm. But, like, the count was, was low and the movement was low and my egg count was low. So we had to do more invasive attempts okay. at ICSI. So they have to take you know, all the medication, all the, the drugs and hormones to, to have me make eggs. And then mm -hmm. um, since the sperm count was low, they had to take whatever viable eggs that I could produce. And so let's say a woman does maybe like with the hormones, like 20 eggs at a time, I'd eight, four mm -hmm. were viable, four, no, four were viable. Three mm -hmm. were fertilized. And because the, the sperm wouldn't fertilize the egg, they had to take, then they would, you know, remember the carnival game when you're young and it's like the central fuge, like you're up against the wall and they drop the floor. Mm -hmm. well, they had to do that with the sperm. Yeah. Take the good ones, right? To uh -huh. the good ones. So the other, the, the ones that were not valid, they got rid of. So they had to inject, so even with the good sperm, the valid sperm, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even fertilize the valid egg. So they had to take one sperm and inject one sperm into one viable egg. So eight eggs produced, this is on the last attempt, not even the prior two. The last attempt, eight eggs were produced, four were viable, three fertilized, two were inserted because they don't, they don't do more than two in Germany. One was put on ice. Now, one mm -hmm. of those eggs embedded into the, the uterine lining, the other just evaporated or absorbed. So my son, literally, we say like the fact that we're here right now is one in a trillion. My son, I don't even know, a billion. The right. fact that plus that I wasn't in, I was not invested into the, the pregnancy because I was scared because of miscarriages prior. And I wouldn't buy into it until I was like eight months. At the same time, everything that you just said, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on stay-at-home dads. 
So uh. I studied at-home dads to understand how they did a mas- constructed their masculinity and what it was like for them because I didn't, I never intended to be an at-home mother, and technically uh. I, I, I wasn't by choice. So, and then to earn a PhD in child development and family studies and the mental anguish I went through in my 40s, no job now, and that's all my identity revolved around and achievement. And I'm at home and what is it has struggled so much with, okay, I have a PhD in child development and family studies. I'm supposed to love being with family. Okay, it's on my, on my terms, okay. I can't mm-hmm. produce milk. My milk just, just dwindled up at like month three. So I'm, I'm dealing with that crisis. I have no job and I'm trying to pump and I'm not successful in that way. And I don't like being at home. I'm going nuts in my head. And I just, I really, I couldn't get anything right at that point. And literally I self, the total identity crisis and a breakdown. I couldn't do it. And all these expectations, not only that culture had on me, that I put on myself. Cause I was a human right. doing, I was not a human being. I was always go, 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 go. I couldn't sit with right. me because the silence was never quiet. Mm-hmm. So in my situation, I was, I felt like I couldn't tell anybody about all of the things that I was going through emotionally and mentally, because number one, I didn't want to be self-diagnosed by my peers as having postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. That was one thing. And then secondly, being that everyone knew in my circle that I struggled with uh, infertility, I didn't now want to say now that I have a child, now that I'm ungrateful about what I'm going through now that I am a mother because um, in my situation, it took me almost uh, eight weeks before I was making enough milk to sustain her. So initially I was just making between six and maybe 18 ounces a day. And then I eventually got up to, um, like I said, 36 to 38 ounces a day, but it was a whole journey. I was doing everything all of the keys, all of the, you know, walking around, you know, the hot showers, the breast compresses. I was determined because my thing is, I'm at home. So there's no, and then I also felt like, well, the one thing I should be able to do is to be a mother. And if I can't even get this one thing right, then I'm, am I going to fail the rest of the right. things I'm supposed to do? Right. You know? And I just felt like I was a poster for disaster. And as it pertained to my Right. And as it pertained to my pregnancy, because I was high risk and every single time I would go to um, the midwife or the OBGYN, depending on what week it is, um, because I attempted to do things as holistically as possible. um, I felt like I couldn't even do maternity pictures because they kept saying from week to week that they don't know if my child is going to make it. So therefore... I didn't even have maternity pictures because by the time I could have maternity pictures, now I was like a huge cow and oh, not wow. to say, you know, anything, you know, negative about, you know, different women that have different uh, appearances, but you know how they always say that you're glowing and that you're attractive. Oh, I was none of that. I was none of that. Like I went from a regular, maybe size six or eight to a size 14. Wow. And yeah. I'm five, three. And yeah, yeah. So for me, that weight looked massive. And um, I didn't mind because as I knew that my end goal was to have a healthy child. But at the same time, I felt like I was, you know, invasions of the body snatchers type situation. Right. Like I felt like it, my body wasn't my own. So um, that's why this um, conversation is so relevant to me because I don't think that people realize this thing called the mental load, which you and I are speaking about as it pertains to motherhood, because as you were speaking about, um, society has placed on us, um, so many things, no matter what you do, if you're a stay at home mom, Mm -hmm. then you need to be able to basically be Mary Poppins. You need to be able to make organic food for your child. Mm -hmm. Be able to knit. You need to be able to have a monastery. 
um, room set up for your child. You need to not overstimulate your child. You need to be able to read. You need to be able to play, you know, um, classical music to your child. So all of these things that you're supposed to be able to do. Conversely, if you are a working mom, then you don't care for your child. Right. You may as well have had, you know, um, hired somebody else to do all the things that you don't want to do. So you just decided you wanted to be a mother, but you, you're not interested in actually being a mom. So yeah, it's like no matter what end of the spectrum you find yourself, um, there's going to be judgment is what I have found in my mm. journey. Yeah. And the judgment, I, I, um, the judgment for, for me was the worst inside internally. And, and um, I didn't have the, the friendship network that it sounds like that you had. And um, I dealt with my um, being a mother by drinking. Mm, okay. Which, uh, yeah, and um, I became more and more depressed. Uh, alcohol is obviously a depressant, and right. for me, I was just—it didn't help at all. It made, made it worse, and um, everybody knew, mm-hmm. and no one wanted to say anything. And the hard thing about it for me was that that um, I didn't have anyone to confide in, confide in at all, and it was so blatantly obvious. So then um, not even not feeling like I was showing up for my son and feeling like a, a thief, like I was robbing time with him. I gave him everything I could. He had everything he could want except a mother who was in mm-hmm. sober. And it didn't even have to be with alcohol. <clears throat> I just wasn't there mentally. I wasn't there. I wasn't there emotionally because I always wanted to be somewhere else. I felt guilty by having to watch television. And also I needed time so that I could like make a meal. And uh, the whole, the breastfeeding thing, I, I mean, I envy even, which is not a wonderful feeling to have, even hearing about the ability to create milk. I thought, you know what, what is the matter with me? I mean, I didn't, I only gained about 15 pounds with my pregnancy because I didn't buy into it. I was still exercising mm-hmm. excessively. I was addicted to exercise. I was still in, in, a, in a, the terrible grips of an eating disorder because it's a control. It's all about control. Mm-hmm. And I wanted mm-hmm. to control everything. And I didn't buy into the pregnancy. I was afraid. Like people didn't know I was pregnant until maybe like seven months. Mm-hmm. I was scared because I was afraid to let go because something terrible would happen again. And so not right. buying the pregnancy is like a self-sabotage. So then now right. in hindsight, how did I self-sabotage my entire life? I stayed in school because I was afraid to grow up. It was the only thing I knew how to do. I was really good at it. So when I continue doing what I know how to do, but then that doesn't train me for life. School exactly. is school is a building. Education is determined and dictated by who have, who has the power to tell what's going to be learned. Wisdom is in gaining information over. I'm sorry, knowledge is gaining that information, and then wisdom is integrating that and finding out what works well for you and what doesn't. We don't teach our children how to interact with one another emotionally. We teach Absolutely. our children basically what's on the page: math, reading for sure, communication a little bit, but then how to public speak, how to be an entrepreneur how to live life, how to show up emotionally for someone in safe space and say, I get it. And just mm-hmm. work and be comfortable with that pregnant pause. Mm-hmm. And being comfortable in their skin and knowing that no matter what, they're enough. And when they walk in the room, my eyes light up. And that, right. that will leave a legacy. And right. And so, I mean, and that's the thing. I didn't learn that. And I perpetuated it based on the culture that I was brought up in. And, mm-hmm. and it just fed into the fact that <clears throat> if I do more, I am more. That's what that's right. what I was like. And I fed into it. I, and it, it was the more accolades, the more validation that I received. And I'm not, there's no blame here. It just is what it is. The more right. accolades and achievement and, and validation that I received, because I'm an external validation junkie. Mm-hmm. And it just fed into it. And so when everything stopped, I had everything I ever wanted in my entire life. And I was completely miserable. That is so interesting and troubling at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I say that because in my situation, I was propelled to achieve because I was the first graduate on my father's side of any sort of institution, being that um, they were initially immigrants from um Trinidad and Tobago. So um, as far as my grandfather, and then it was a whole line. It's, um, and then my father, he was born here in the States, but still very much raised in a, a traditional West Indian mindset. So how that translated to me is as a woman of color, specifically a black woman, I was told that I need to be twice as good to mm-hmm. be able 
to um, be recognized, especially being that I decided to be in one of the most competitive fields that you can work in. Um, if you turn on the, any news, no matter what state you're in, you're only going to see a handful of people of color because that's just how that's the way society is set up. You know, it's one of those things that it is what it is. But um, when you spoke about achievement, the thing when I say, you know, I'm great at school and not at life. So, for example, a lot of things that people might think is um, a cog. Um, common sense type of thing mm -hmm. is something that I usually am not going to get. Absolutely. Um, and I say that, you know, like if it's a joke, for example, mm -hmm. I, I often don't get jokes, <laughs> but, yes. um, but I'm told I'm funny. And I mm -hmm. think it might be because of my perception on whatever the reality is that I perceive it to be. But um typically, you know, just when it comes to picking up on verbal cues, because sometimes I think, well, am I slight on my, am I on the spectrum of, you know, autistic or do I have Asperger's, you know, because, right. you know, I honestly, in a social situation, I feel like I, you know, am on the slow bus, mm -hmm. but if I am in an academic or professional situation where it's like a conference or a networking event, I thrive because I'm able to speak on those certain specific Absolutely. areas. Absolutely. And then I am considered to be an expert in mm -hmm. those areas even, you know, but when I'm in a, you know, like I said, a social setting, like let's say a barbecue or a birthday party or any of those things. And like I said, a common joke or theory or whatever is said, it's going to go directly over my head, right. you know, but because other people are laughing, I'll laugh. And, you know, I'll ask my best friend or my partner that I'm with, I'll say, you know, so why was that funny, really? Mm -hmm. and, then, and then it'll be like, well, did you not get it? You know why? And then it's like, I really didn't get it. And mm -hmm. then it's just like, oh, well, it was because we were saying this or that. And it's just like, oh, Okay, right. now I get it. And for me, it's kind of like, why is it so easy for me to understand something that's complicated in nature, academically or professionally? Like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with a mind map, but yeah. it's one of the um, strategies that I learned in college. So if it's a complicated topic, you put that at the central of the page and then you break it up into pieces, you know, as far as little branches, the parts that you do understand, and then you work out from there. But when it's a quick social interaction, like uh -huh. I said, you know, it's, for example, I never know when anyone likes me. <laughs> I definitely never pick up on that because I figure they're probably interested in me for whatever topical information that we might be talking about, you know? Mm. And so it'll have to be, somebody will have to directly tell me, you know, or ask me for my number. Or at this point they ask, you know, for social media or something. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, even in that instance, I'm like, well, is it because you want to get to know me? Right. Or are yeah, you, like, mm -hmm. I'm really asking for clarity. And they often will look at me like, well, obviously I want to take you out. And I'm like, well, really? Okay. Right. Well, I would not have ever arrived at that because I'm not, as a journalist, I'm not going to ever um, assume. I would rather gather information and evidence right. and then um, move from there. So that's how I look at life. For the oh, most part, is I look, yeah, it, I look at things from a very, um, I guess you could say, research perspective. Absolutely. And so the people in my life, whenever I am learning anything new, because I tend to gather, you know how people buy purses or collect yeah. things like porcelain <laughs> dolls? Like I collect um, certifications. Because oh, hello. hello. Yes, 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 yes. Because whenever I happen to have any moment of sitting still, I think in my mind, well, what class can I take? Mm -hmm. Because if I take a class, then I don't really have to deal with whatever thing in life I'm having issues with. Because, sure. you know, if it's a situation with, for example, gender roles, who's supposed to do what in the house? Or um, if I'm having an issue with communicating my needs, I don't really have to talk about my needs. If I have to go to a class in the evening, you know, I can avoid it. And so I found out that my coping mechanism for life was avoidance through certification. Absolutely. <laughs> and I love what you're saying is that it's, it's like, for me, mine is people pleasing, high, hyper achiever and um, 
people pleasing hyperachiever and um what the heck is it? oh uh, tasker so uh -huh. I mean, and then and then we learned that stuff growing up though when you think about it i use a program called positive intelligence and uh -huh. it's, it's emotional intelligence is great i find myself quite fluent in emotional intelligence in that do you like me well i want to be respected uh -huh. too but um i'm i'm quite attuned to uh my, I mean, as an empath, quite attuned to my own feelings and then those of others. I remember when I was eight years old, I said to my stepmother once, I said, sometimes my feelings are so deep, they scare me. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to deal with them. So mm -hmm. now knowing how to deal with them, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the why. The how and the what is positive intelligence. And that is how do we go from knowing that, that we learn certain things in childhood that help us. Like for me, learning as a child, that it's my parents liked that I was a hyperachiever because, oh, all my kids are going to grow graduate from college. And, oh, this is my Lori. She's Dr. Lori and Dr. Laura. And, you know, I got attention for that. And at the same time, mm -hmm. as I'm very young, thanks for helping out. That was so wonderful. I couldn't have done it without you. Look at my little girl. She's so great and helpful. Okay. So that growing up, sure, I'll help you out. And I keep giving, giving, giving to, of myself to others. And then I get pissed off when people don't reciprocate. They didn't mm -hmm. even know they were part of the equation. That's not helpful. Mm -hmm. I get resentful or um, I'm hyperachiever. Well, I did it. Why? To fill something in me that I couldn't fill for myself. Did that? I needed that on the wall to validate myself or I'm so busy. I'm so busy, but I'm not productive. And so mm -hmm. the thing about that is, is that sabotage that we get into because that's how we learn how to grow up and to survive in the world. Well, the saber tooth tiger isn't coming around the corner anytime soon. So I don't need to be hypervigilant. And people mm -hmm. actually do respect me more when I say no to certain things. Because they say, oh, she does have boundaries. And then when right. I'm actually, I'm not so busy, I can focus more on one thing. And so right. if I, if I, do I really need to earn another degree? I mean, what is it going to benefit me? I hear what you're saying. And so then how do we then stop from sabotaging ourselves and go from realizing that we have our hand on the hot burner on the stove? I know it's not helpful for me to keep saying yes to everybody. I got to yeah. say no. How long do I want to stay in that muck? How long is it going to be helpful for me to avoid addressing this topic and just sound like there's nothing wrong with it? Because it's going to come up. How about just go through, just deal with it and move on? How helpful is it for me to be so busy that I can't focus on anything and then nothing gets done? So uh -huh. really sitting with, okay, what can I do? And there are certain things that we can do to help get us out of that self-sabotage mode. And it's all about strengthening the other side of the brain. And I, I love I love what you said. It's like collecting facts. And then I'm, an, I'm a scientist, I'm a researcher. My foundation is academia, so I understand research. And I love that because I can understand all the facts, we'll try to, and then make a conclusion. Right. But then how then do we jump with faith? Because for example, there's science and then there's faith. And I'll give you a very clear cut example. There's a movie called Contact. It was back a few years ago with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. And he's a man of the cloth and she's an uh, astronaut. And she's, um, a, you know, science is the only thing, math can prove everything and very analytical and linear and logical, uh, rational. And um, he's a person of faith, a man of the cloth. And he says uh, he's more of um, more of the intuitive, not yeah, the intuitive and um, empathic and, and more on the, I don't say esoteric, but emotional side. And I don't, um, I don't, when I say, I don't say emotional, like he's crying. I mean, he's very tuned into his feelings. Right. And so her, her father died at the beginning of the movie. And they're having this this conflict about, you know, well, what about math? No, math is better. Science is better. And then what about what you believe in, he, what your faith is? And she said, no, I don't agree. And he said, he gave her an example. He said, did you love your father? Hmm. And she said, of hmm. course. And he says, prove it. You hmm. can't prove that. It's something you know. It's, hmm. not, it's not tangible. You can't see it. It's there. Hmm. Uh -huh. And so does that mean it's not valid? Does that mean it doesn't exist? So Absolutely. that's something to ponder on. I mean, and to stay in my self-sabotage mode of it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. Well, it's never going to be perfect. So how am I going to stop procrastinating? Just get it done and it's enough. It's never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be smart enough, rich enough, pretty enough, whatever it is. I'm enough for me today in my skin. That's all that matters. So then I show up in the world and I just keep showing up. Right. And I feel like that's really powerful because in my youth, um, there was this series called Anne of Green Gables and one of her yeah. famous 
sentence is, I'm in the depths of despair. And even though it sounds really um, like she's exaggerating, there will be times when I am overcome with emotion and I can't really even pinpoint the catalyst for my emotions because I have been so busy suppressing my emotions because of whatever I have dealt with in the newsroom or professionally. And then when it, when I come home, you know, suppressing because I don't want to be looked at as, you know, um, like I'm draining the happiness out of this space, you know? So when I am asked, how is my, how did my day go? I answer brightly. Oh, it was great. It was fine. In reality, it was a whole, you know, shit disaster on wheels. Right. You know? Right. I didn't say that because again, I don't want to be looked at as a problem. And when it comes to me being a people pleaser as well, I want people to be happy, especially my right. partner, because I care about them. Yeah. You know, so wanted, it's like, um, the way that I think I found out that in order for us to have a positive relationship dynamic, I had to start advocating for myself in mm. real time. And it wasn't as if he was doing something that he should, you know, like I need to somehow escape, but it was that I needed to speak my mm. truth in the moment. So for example, if I feel like my feelings are hurt, because he's a person that operates as if it's love language is concerned, he's a doer. Yeah, um, he is. Uh, he shows love through action. Right, right. I'm a person where just because you are doing actions, I'm never going to arrive at the conclusion that you love me. In my mind, I will find a reason for you doing whatever positive thing you've done. I will say, oh, well, they must have had extra time on their hands and they decided to come over and be helpful in whatever domestic chore they decided to help with. Or if it's a gift, oh, well, they must have had a bonus. So they decided to share or whatever the case may be. But I'm not going to assume that because they've done whatever activity that that equates to love or care. So I need to hear I have done wow, right. because I care. And right. That's for him, right. Okay. And so for him, he's like, for what and for why? Because he's in his 40s and he's been the way he's been for however long that right. is. And so he's like, you know, nobody else has ever complained about my <laughs> well, way you of anybody else. You're you. Right. And I'm like, well, um, congratulations. <laughs> um, me, I am never. He was just like, because, for example, if a relationship had a GPS and they were to get the same directions as I, they would end up in a field that says he loves me. Mm -hmm. right, 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 right. The field that I end up in is what the fuck right, is going right. on and why? Because I have all of these things and I don't know how to interpret them because yeah. they're all random actions in my mind, but in his mind and how he was conditioned by his relationships and also his life, right. you know, because he's, you know, works in law enforcement. He's very uh, regimented. He's very a logical person. So for him, he looks at everything from a white and black perspective, absolutely. right and wrong. And he's a problem solver. Okay. So, you know, that's how he looks at everything. So if I come to him with anything, he, it's a problem for him to solve. And so I'm like, first of all, it's not a problem. I just want to talk about my feelings. Right. And, and I already have a solution. Uh -huh. I just want to still talk about how I feel about whatever has happened right. in his mind. He's like, well, what is the purpose of the conversation? If I'm not solving anything and we're not solving. So you just legit want to talk. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then he's just like, Okay. And he will indulge me, but I know it's taking a lot out of him because again, he doesn't see the point of the exchange because we're not talking to arrive anywhere. Well, if, it comes from, if it comes from a point of, if it comes from the source of what's the problem, the problem is I want to have someone listen. Well, what can I do? Listen. Well, let me do something. Listen. Are you sure? Let's do it this way. Listen. What do you want to do? Listen. That's an activity called active listening. I don't want you to say nothing. Just listen. That's my problem. The problem right. is X, Y, and Z. My problem is I want to learn how to cope with this. My problem is I just want someone there to listen. That's my problem. If I have a problem, I got a problem. It's nobody else's problem. You don't have to solve my problem. I can. And I'm telling you the solution. I need you just to listen while I want to do something. It's called active listening. Look uh -huh. at the bring, I mean, seriously, bring it out and show the doc, show the, the research on it.
active listening. And when someone feels heard, they feel seen, they feel validated. Absolutely. They feel connected. They feel of worth. So, yeah. So we could have a little talk with him. Um, And then we've done a lot better in recent days because, you know, um, prior to this little part of our relationship, we didn't really have conflict because even though we think differently, we think the same on the quote unquote big issues of life. But when it comes to, for example, you know, who does what? Jesus is not going to be there to dole out the chores. (laughs) <laughs> right. Or, or when it comes to trying to figure out, like for me, I like to finish an argument, meaning um, I want to have clarity right now on mm-hmm. how we feel. Um, he is a person where he wants to pause and assist and assess and, you know, come up with some logical conclusion on whatever it is. And I'm like, um, I, cause he calls it, he says, I like to dig holes when it's not necessary to dig holes. And I say, I'm not digging a hole. I'm just completing my thought. But in his mind, he feels that I'm digging a hole because we've already discussed it. And why am I still discussing it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, cause I'm not done just because you have reached a conclusion that you have found, um, some sort of a way of dealing with whatever it is. For me, it's still a conflict because even though I might agree with whatever it is that you have found to be the conclusion, I still have feelings about it. So therefore I still want to discuss it. Absolutely. And, and once the, those feelings are heard, once it, and it's not even that they're agreed upon. It's that this is the, I mean, the best thing that I've learned in terms of active listening and communicate interpersonal communication is it sounds like a parrot, but essentially it comes down to you state what you state and then the person reflects back. So what I hear you say is, what I hear you say is this, what I understand that to mean is this, and then allow the original person, no, that's not what I said, or yeah, okay. And then that, now the problem, the problem can be between the, the partners is then does the um, person who originally, since the, the partner A says what they mm-hmm. say. Partner B um, re, um, reflects back what they heard, and then if partner A agrees, okay, that's that's the deal. The problem then becomes if partner A keeps going on and on and on when the partner B has and the partner A has indicated that partner B already understands. Mm-hmm. So just the rehashing. I get in these circular conversations with people. I was like, I understand that. I heard you say this and this and this, and you say that yes, that's what you said. So we don't need to go over that again. Can we move on? Right, but I don't ever want to move on because well, again, do you do you feel heard? Do you, do you feel heard on that point? I do feel heard, but I guess the difference is me feeling heard versus me feeling like the situation is resolved is different in well, my yeah. mind. So the situation has to be resolved, and or um, well, that could just be your point. Could be one part of the whole circumstance. So I mean, that could just be one one variable. One right. variable. I mean, that's just one part of it. And then coming to a solution, I mean, A and B doesn't equal C sometimes, and one and two don't make three necessarily. Sometimes right. one and two make five. Right. Because right. what do you represent? And what so what I had to... Go ahead. Right. Sorry. And what I had to learn is that basically people learned how to communicate in relationships in their 20s and early 30s. And I feel like I'm on the remedial bus of life when it comes to communication, because quite honestly, whenever things would become difficult in my previous relationships, um, I would just leave or I would break up or whatever have you. Or in those situations, there, when there was conflict, they would just defer to whatever I said. And then I never had to really, you know, be with a person where I had to work through a challenge because there I didn't have challenges per se. My my question would be, uh, what were what were your communications? What was the dynamic in your family of origin growing up? Yeah. So it was my dad had the final say. Right. So. okay. so and. And having like I'm, I have a masculine. I tend to have a masculine uh, sexual orientation. I'm quite masculine in work, mm-hmm. um, and then in relationships, a little bit more feminine, but not passive, softer, more mm-hmm. gentler, gentler. And so, if um, affiliating with my mother, who was quite dominant, and it wasn't mm-hmm. her way or the highway, it was a little bit communication. But if you're going to have a bad mood, you're going to go in your room. You're not going to have it by us. Well, then how the heck do I learn how to come? How how the heck do I learn how to communicate that I'm having a negative feeling? 
I, don't, right. I never learned to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm only taught about the good. We can get along if we're having a good time. Let's party. Let's, you know, it is all gregarious and we're laughing. That's okay. But if someone's got a problem, I can have that problem, but I go bye-bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then. Right. And so for me, how I felt with those situations is, well, children are supposed to be seen, not heard. Right. And you're supposed to respect your elders. Mm-hmm. And so because that's how I was raised in a relationship, generally speaking, I would allow the man to dictate pretty much the tone of the relationship. And when it got to a place, like I said, that I didn't like, then I would voice that I didn't like it. And then it would typically go my way. Whereas in my current dynamic, it's like, okay, um, we can agree to the fact that, for example, the sky is blue on a lot of days. However, the sky is also gray and it can also be different colors of pink and orange, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's sunset or sunrise, you know. But the thing is, um, just because I say the sky is blue, that could be a fact sometimes. Right, right. Yes, it's all contextual. I love that because you're setting it up that relationships are not perfect. They're never going to be perfect and it's contextual. So to have a a solution to a problem, that's that's only a solution right then and there. And then, you know what? Wait, wait. Okay, now there's another time. Wait, then wait. Mm-hmm. So every time something new comes up, it's all contextual. So, I mean, possibly we can have a vague, you know, kind of like a fluid understanding of what the parameters are. It's like in a relationship. I'm going to teach you how to treat me. These are the things that are what not allowed. You will not mm-hmm. to me. I will not allow you to. And if you do, I'm gone. And mm-hmm. then under certain circumstances... Okay, so my son, he told a joke in school the other week, and it was a it was a racial joke. Okay, but and so okay, he's got to be punished for that discipline. Now he's not going to get lunch detention again because he enjoyed being there to see what the principal's office looked like. Because he thought, oh, if I ever get in trouble again, at least I know what it looks like. What? So he's mm-hmm. not. He has he has to have something more stringent. So mm-hmm. discipline and punishment for sure. Then what type of parameters are there on that? So it's mm. like it's like we're taught we're, we're training our children. We train our partners actually. We also train ourselves and say this is not what's allowed. And we teach people how to treat us. I love that quote by Maya Angelou. And when they show up, when people show, show you who they are and they tell you who they are, believe them. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, change. I can make them change. No, go get out. Go. Right. And why would you want to be responsible for that anyway? Oh my God, because- I love that you said that. You know, my whole thing is, you know, even if I have come to the conclusion that, you know, I should change or that change is uh, positive for me, it still takes a lot for me to actually get to the point where I'm actually instituting that change. So, For example, I know that I shouldn't be eating, for example, processed foods or I shouldn't be eating past a certain time of night because my metabolism has slowed to Mm -hmm. something that resembles a crawl at this point. (laughs) You know, so it's like, whereas before I could eat legit anything. And I felt like, you know, my mom's genetic makeup and that of her sisters is, you know, they can eat anything and then they all stay around a size, you know, six or eight at the most. Whereas me, I eat everything. And all of a sudden I'm a size 14, 16. And it's like, how? Mm -hmm. Well, I got my dad's genetic makeup as it pertains to the distribution of weight. And so therefore I have to now put in all sorts of effort, you know, to maintain a particular size, which I really don't mind, but it's still sometimes problematic when it comes to my lifestyle choices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though I might exercise, you know, and, you know, cause I had to understand I needed to also exercise, sleep, the right amount of sleep and eat the correct way. And because I can eat the right thing, but eat the wrong portions of the right, right thing, still gain an excessive amount of weight. So my problem is portion control. It isn't about anything else. And I think what it is, is my relationship with food was I rewarded myself for the hardships of life at work or in relationship by eating because I felt like I went through a hard ass day at work or I'm at a, you know, problematic point in my relationship. So something I can do that I have control of is how much macaroni or how much, um, you know, whatever other awful thing that I want to eat in the middle of the night. Absolutely. You know, yep. and so that's what I, that was my comfort, you know, when they say comfort food, it, I really felt comforted, yep. you know, because oh, 
you know, I really felt comforted because I feel full. And then typically I then am able to sleep, you know? And so I'm thinking problem solved as opposed to going through things the rational way or the more healthy way of, okay, well, let's stop and pause for a minute. Why are you trying to fix your problems with whatever it is you're trying to eat? Absolutely. Why don't we get to the bottom of how you feel and then get removed from there on some coping mechanisms and skills. But in order for me to get to that place, I had to first acknowledge that I had an issue or a problem or a challenge or whatever word you want to adjective you want to put there um, when it came to portion control. So Mm -hmm. once I was able to have that as a starting place, then I was able to accept that I need to have a pathway for figuring out a more healthy way to deal with my emotions. And so, you know, it's been a journey, but I have to say that this conversation is definitely one that I have found all sorts of meaning in, and I'm just so thankful for your time. But I wanted to know before we end the podcast, I have two more questions if you would indulge me because we are running up to the hour mark. Um, I'm wondering, um, as it pertains to the fact that I'm about to be, uh, I'm on the mm-hmm. precipice of 40, do you have a particular tip that you found that would you wish somebody would have told you when it came to navigating your 40s um, in uh, perfect, your professional uh, career or in um, personally your interpersonal communications with people? Do you have one or two tips in those areas? That's such a great question. My first tip is to allow yourself some grace and space. That it's it's okay to say I'm not okay. That when that silence is not quiet and you can't sit with the self because we're human beings, that give yourself a break. It's never gonna be perfect. No one's ever gonna be perfect. And so find the joy in the journey because the end goal, we're all born to die. That's the process. We born that we were birthed, then we're dead. So we're, mm-hmm. we're all, that's the one thing that we have in common. And the, this, this two sh- scripture does not say this two shall remain the same. Mm-hmm. It shall pass. It shall pass. <laughs> it's a wave, baby. Ride the wave. And mm-hmm. the, other, the other, the other tip I would have is um, acknowledge for that moment when you feel like, gosh, I'm just doing the best that I can today. Uh Let others have that benefit of the doubt. Let others just recognize that no matter what, someone could be saying something that's ticking me off or it's just not going how I want it to, or the world's out to get me. That's not likely how it's happening. And then everybody's just doing the best that they can. If they're, if you feel like they're judging you or the, somebody's doing something that you don't imagine what they're going through inside of them. If you feel like they're trying to manipulate or control you, imagine what their internal dialogue must be like on them. Because hurt people hurt people. Empower people empower people. So you'll see it in your life when people show up and you're like, wow, that person's amazing. Look how how fabulous they are. And look at what they're doing for all these other people. That's how they feel inside sometimes. Hurt people hurt people. They're hurting. It's not about you. It's not about me. They're doing it. It's about them. So... Those are my two little nuggets, I guess. Well, those are really relevant. And I honestly feel like I need to sit and marinate (laughs) on how to best um, find a way to integrate that into my daily life, that practice. Because what I am finding is that a lot of the things that I am learning how to do um, isn't that it's really difficult on a conceptual level, but it's difficult in a practical sense. Absolutely. Holla. Preach. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. For me specifically, I can't speak to other people's examples or situations, you know, but yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And lastly, I wanted to ask, is there something that you feel like we didn't cover that you would like to share with my audience? Um, I suppose, you know, I think, I think it pretty well ran the gamut instead of, uh, going wider, I would say go deeper. Look within, mm. and I guess that's related to the the two tips that I gave. Is just allow yourself some space and grace, and everybody's just doing the best that they can. And with that space, 
and then with the understanding that everybody's doing the best they can, there's empathy there and have some compassion and empathy for yourself. Like it took me, I couldn't sit still for 20 years. It just, I almost died. I was about five pounds from death. I was starving to be seen. And when I really sat with me, cause I was forced to, I was going to die. Mm. The world didn't end. The sky didn't come falling down. And in fact, what happened is I let go of all control. And that's when the control started to happen. I, I controlled, try to control everything and I controlled nothing. So when we let go, when we let go of things, things just come to us and they're offered. Right. Wow. So, that is so powerful. Go deep. go deep. Go big or go home is what I say. Go big or go home. That's right. Last thing, last word. So if people would like to connect with you, how can they best do that? My presence is quite strong on LinkedIn. Uh, you can just look for me. Okay. The last portion is Dr. Laura Cobb, D-R-L-A-U-R-A-C-O-B-B. And my website is DrLauraCobbLifeCoach.com. And I'm also on Clubhouse. I have a, room, a club called Phenomenal Women Unite. And I run rooms on Monday, Wednesday, Friday nights at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. I'd love for you to come. And uh, if you have an idea, this is a topic that you want to address, just uh, let me know. My email is laura at drlauracobb.com. Okay. Thank you again so much for your time. Again, this has been such a fruitful conversation. And I feel that it, this is an episode that I will definitely be revisiting for my own personal growth and development. So again, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to learn from you. And I hope this provides some, some wisdom in any way for your guests and your audiences. Thank you. Awesome. So people, my name is Tasha Ray, the host of Womanhood Decoded, where each episode I endeavor to explore the intersections of womanhood, motherhood, and sexuality. You can find my podcast on the Audible app. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you happen to not have any of those platforms, you can just visit Womanhood Decoded Podcast on Instagram, and you can click the link on my bio, and you can go directly to your browser, and you can listen to each episode. And I will see you next time.